Welcome everyone to our CISO Live event. Normally I would say good morning, because that's what time it is for me, but we are actually reaching internationally. So good day to all. The CISO Live event is where our panel of experts are here to answer your questions without sales pitches. As the Cyber, Cyber Solutions Director for Stealth ISS Group, I want to introduce myself. I'm Todd Zelenka, your host, MC, and facilitator. So welcome to CISO Live. Wait a minute. Where's the dramatic music? Emmy, hey, we need to fix that next time. You might ask why I'm wearing a mask and gloves. Well, with the recent spike in cases, I figured it was my duty to practice social distancing and wear protective devices for your protection and mine. Seriously, I do hope that everyone in their family is safe and healthy at this time because I know it's been a concern and we've all been working remote for the most part. So before I introduce our panel, I want to address a few housekeeping items. Number one, we encourage and expect participation from the attendees. However, we do not, we do need to be respectful, so please keep yourself on mute unless you're speaking and avoid talking over someone else. An additional benefit of muting is that we don't get to hear the dogs barking, the babies crying, or that train passing by your remote location. Number two, this is for the panelists. There will be no fighting, no biting, no backstabbing, no flying off the top rope maneuvers during the discussion. Of course, I'm joking. We're here to be entertained, but informed, and everybody will cooperate well. Number three, for everyone, please submit your questions through Slido, number 87381, it's in the comments section, at any time during the event. We are gonna do our best to answer them. If, due to time constraints, we're not able to get to all of them, we will provide answers to those questions in a follow-up email for everyone's benefit. So without further ado, let's meet the experts. So first, let me introduce James Azar, CISO and podcast host. We have Paul Oylakin. He's the founder of pjcourses.com. Leighton Johnson, CTO and founder of ISFMT Incorporated. That stands for Information Security Forensics Management Team. And of course, our fearless leader, our president, founder, and CISO of Stealth Group, Ms. Dasha Deckworth. So without any further ado, let's get started with question number one. How secure is the cloud and what are the biggest security risks with having data in the cloud? It's a shared responsibility for security and that's one of the biggest things that most cloud consumers miss is that they have, it's a shared thing. And so both sides of the equation and the cloud have to work with each other in order to make it work properly. Um, all the major providers in the last oh, 14 months have opened up the ability to be able to allow cloud consumers to evaluate the security at the cloud provider site. Um, Amazon has done it. Uh, Azure has done it. GCP has done it. Oracle has done it. Um, IBM has done it. They're all doing it now um, to allow for that shared responsibility model to work because it really wasn't working beforehand. And, you know, the classic example is in the Amazon mechanism, every cloud consumer is responsible for security of their storage on the S3 buckets. And I have 
constantly seeing 90, 95% of the cloud consumers have no idea what that even means, let alone be doing it. And so I think this whole thing about um, it being a shared mechanism really has to be understood by both sides in order to accomplish it. And the cloud providers are getting better with it. Uh, they're not all the way there, certainly, um, but they are getting better with it. Well, fantastic. And you must have a list of some of the questions or you got access because that was the next question. Who holds responsibility? <laughs> so thank you for getting that one out of the way for us. But it is, you know, like you said, it, it, a lot of people don't realize that they are very responsible for their own data, regardless of, of what they're using in the cloud. Uh, everybody wants to transfer it. Um, next well, question. I mean, Go ahead. If you look at it from a contractual perspective, which most people don't look when they're looking at a cloud provider, especially in small, mid-sized businesses, a lot of times you see that they're missing the point of who's in charge of security. They see the security clause and the security clause in any cloud contract says, we, our job, our security is to make sure that no one can come into this uh, rack and take right. your data. And that's where it ends. Right. And every, everything beyond that isn't, isn't our responsibility. And oftentimes that's written in the language and it's described in a way where um, the people who are less less educated on cloud security are often misled by that one statement right there. Um, and you see, and you see that quite often, especially with startups. Um, you see it quite often with startups where um, you, you send them a third party security questionnaire and you say, who's doing your security? And they go, Amazon, we're an AWS. <laughs> and so you end up having to coach them. Um, right. And, and mature them into that, into that little, in, into understanding what cloud security is really all about. Well, important to add to that, I think a lot is also the education of the consumer. I mean, obviously not everybody is an expert in cyber and there's not really a cheat sheet out there to explain what it means security responsibility. There's security responsibility for data, there's encryption, there's the network, there's endpoint security. So you've got different components there. And uh, one thing that I ran into a lot is data centers or yeah, data centers and cloud providers, they usually have, we're secure, we are PCI compliant or we're HIPAA compliant. And um, a lot of consumers just take that as, okay, well, I just take my data, for example, healthcare, and throw it onto the cloud because they say they're HIPAA certified and everything is taken care of. But uh, I think part of the education on our side as CISOs is also to make the clients, the end user, understand that, yes, the data center or the cloud provider might be HIPAA compliant from a physical perspective, maybe from a network monitoring perspective, maybe from an uptime perspective, maybe disaster recovery, but not so much encryption at the endpoint or encryption on the healthcare application that actually has the data or the user access in the application. Is that's the responsibility of the end user, of the client. Absolutely, I like to piggyback off of that. Um, you know, end users always been the biggest security uh, weakness for any organization. That hasn't changed just because, you know, things are now cloud enabled. Um, I'm a big fan of analogy, by the way, and I always look at it like this. If you buy a car and it's your car versus if you rent a car. If you get in a car accident, you're still, you know, injured at the end of the day, and you still have to take care of that. So um you know how secure is the cloud 
it's about even with on-premise, um, in my opinion. Um, you still have to approach it with the same, with the same perspective. Very valid point. All right, so next question is, what is the risk with hybrid networks? Is it better than putting it all in the cloud? Oof, you're giving me, um, <laughs> you're giving me flashbacks there. I'm, um, <laughs> I've been a part of- Okay, use that car analogy, come on. <laughs> no, no, we're at the car now. Um, but no, I've, been, um, I've been fortunate enough to be a part of a lot of cloud migration projects. And um, you know, with the, with, with the hybrid environment, um, I think the biggest thing a lot of, well, there's a few things that, that needs to be focused on. There's, you know, the encryption of data, because now we're talking about a, a traffic highway of your data going between on-prem and cloud. And so a lot of people have to really be considerate of how's that getting transmitted from here to there, right? Um, we're talking about um, compliance. That's, a, that's another big piece that I've seen a lot of organization um, don't really take into consideration. They say, okay, well, we got a cloud, we got on-prem, let's do a system A and A. Let's do, um, let's do an assessment on this system. And they don't really understand that two systems, sometimes even three, right? If you've got a PaaS environment, um, um, platform as a service, um, and you've got two applications, you probably need to do two different sets of security assessment on that. So I think a lot of um, organization um, falls short when it comes to assessing what they really have because there's so many dynamic and let's not even talk about the management portal for your cloud system that needs its own security assessment as well so you've really got to when you're doing hybrid you really want to be careful to make sure that you're covering all your entrance and exit points and um i think a lot of organizations don't really see that see that need they just want to do it all in one time one of the biggest things i've seen paul with looking at those types of environments is getting the end user to understand what data is sensitive and what's not. When you're doing an, an on-prem versus a cloud environment, it's usually because of data classification mechanisms. They wanna really manage their own and the, the most sensitive data to the corporation, but then they do all the other stuff out in the cloud because of the efficiencies. And then they start mixing it. And that's where they run into lots and lots of problems in that mixing and understanding it. And then it becomes a matter of what technologies are you using to access what points, what mechanisms, and as you said, how do you manage the traffic flows? How do you manage the encryption mechanisms going back and forth uh, on the different types of data, et cetera, that the organization has? I worked with a company a couple of years ago that had 28 different deployed mechanisms for cloud with four different cloud vendors and then they had their own on top of that um, in their own 16 data centers around the world um, that type of thing so it was a management as you said nightmare uh, <laughs> around that mechanism as you can well imagine they had to build in you know layers uh, in those mechanisms to get the end users um, their own end users, of which there were 50,000, then their customer base, which was more than 2 million, um, on those types of things to, to work all of those areas that are all part of that process. So to kind of sum up our, our cloud topic, 
Um, what what would be the advice to maintain security after you might if you make the decision to migrate to the cloud? What what's y'all's advice to maintain security after that point? Own your own encryption. Don't let them own it. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> Number one. Uh, hey, that way you manage the data, and that way it stays in your uh, area of expertise rather than theirs. Um, I know every vendor is going to say that they can manage it if you give them the keys. I got that. But, uh, you know, I've been in the cloud since it started, and I'll still say own your own encryption. All right. Don't let them own it for you. I think I would, I would add to that and go maybe a step before that is you need to understand what your responsibility is and what your provider's responsibility is. If you don't know it, you cannot maintain security. So you have to have that first clearly defined. And then once you have it, encryption 100%, if vulnerability patch management is your responsibility, then you have to maintain it. Basically, secure baseline security, password, identity access management, pass, uh, patching, um, vulnerability management, all of that stuff is then private. But um, it really the key is understand what you're responsible for and stick with it. There's a lot of standards, there's a lot of guidelines on how to do certain things, how frequently to do them. And um, as long as you stick to that, I think you're, you're good. But it's yeah, a the cloud security. The Cloud Security Alliance has some great tools for basic cloud security management. Yeah. Just, you know, a, a yeah. list of eight things to do. And that if you do those, You've, you pretty much reduce your chances of, of being a victim to a basic or less than a sophisticated cyber incident. Um, and so, you know, everything in security is always about your basic blocking and tackling. So just do your basic blocking and tackling, you know, on the cloud like you would on-prem, like you would anywhere else, like you would on any other application, and you'll be okay. Um, just speaking from personal experience, uh, one of the one of the um, advices I will give to organizations is give every department a chance to catch catch up to the learning curve of being in the cloud. Um, and I'm probably going to rub off a lot of system admins off the wrong way by saying this, but obviously I'm biased for the security team. But while the system admins are learning the cloud, they don't have time to to to, to be bothered with the NIST 853 controls. They want to get right. this thing work right. Um, there needs to be a special consideration for the security team after the system admins have learned and mastered the cloud for the security team to come in and be able to dialogue effectively with the system admins to be able to, um, to, be able to um, assess the, um, what's going on appropriately. Otherwise, you end up in a rush job where you're rushing to production and then all of a sudden there's fires and the incident response team has to come in. Great. Well, thank you for the input on that. Um, got one that has come in uh, that just just recently uh, from our audience. What security metrics do you find the most value in? How do you ensure that efforts to improve metrics are driving the correct behaviors? So I think security metrics, there's a lot you can measure. Um, I think the key is, uh, I believe what Leighton said earlier, is knowing what data is critical. I mean, you can have data that might, uh, that you may, and it goes back to the CIA, the Triad Confidentiality Integrity Availability, 
some data, you need to have uptime. You need to, they need to be available at all times. So you're going to want to measure there. Um, how often can I access them? Is it online 99.9% of the time? And then also you have um, data that, for example, is very sensitive and you need to implement a DLP or file integrity monitoring tool to measure that. So I don't think there is, well, personally, I always believe in there's a lot of tools, processes, and measurements you can throw at anything, but the key is to identify what is it that you really need because you don't need to measure everything. You need to identify what is it key for me? What am I monitoring? What am I monitoring for? What tools or processes or measurements do I need to put in place to achieve what I'm trying to get to? So, and I, I know a lot of people always say, well, security, it's cost, it's a, you know, we don't really want to do it. But at the same time today, it's a business enabler and you can minimize the cost and be efficient with how you address security by identifying what is it that you need to protect and how to protect it. And I think that's, that's also where a lot of companies are struggling with it. They think, well, I need to protect everything equally and I need to monitor everything equally. And to be honest, 90% 90 of the time, that's, that's not the case. You know, metrics always goes back, as you said, from my viewpoint, what are we protecting for? And therefore, you need what you have at what level. And that way, then you can say you don't need to monitor everything all the time. You look at what's important. Then you can work through a whole risk parameter mechanism around those in order to get to the right level of metrics, whether they be the key risk metrics around the higher it is, the worse it's getting, the more you got a problem, or the key performance metrics where it is, the higher it is, the better you're going. You know, those types of things about the metrics. And so the idea is, what are you protecting at what level? How important is it to the business? Um, is it the critical area of the information that the business uses to make their money or to produce their service or whatever it be? And if that's the case, then you apply more focus there um, as you put together your criteria. You know, there's a adage in the security industry, you can't put in a security control unless you know how, whether or not it's working. And so you have to have a map for it anyway uh, in order to show that it's working. But because of that, you also have to understand what are the most important areas to the business from the business perspective. Okay, not necessarily from the security perspective, but from the business perspective. And that's why we always, as I have many times as a CISO, I end up being the translator to the senior executives, to the board about, well, what does that mean to the business? Okay, you know, they go, oh, oh here comes the geek speak guy, get out of the way, you know, that type of thing. But the idea is to put it in the business terms so that they can understand it because they're the ones with the resources. If I may, I spend a lot of time in the metric space. Um, to your point, Leighton, you know, they really want to know what the value of mm -hmm. uh, what Dasha was bringing up, the value of that, uh, I'll call it not the cost, but the investment dollar. Um, are they spending it in the right place, right? I mean, we, you're going to track a ton of different things in terms of volume, uh, day over day, month over month, hour over hour, look at trends, all valuable information that, that offers insight. 
Um, but I think you've really, if you start looking at the types of things you identify at the root cause of a problem, you, you need to come up with a way to rank and score those things for management, mm -hmm. right? So you can look at them and put them in a prioritized list to show that, hey, what we're doing, um, I, I can show you what the risk is by, by looking at the score that we've assigned to this. Uh, and if we take an action, <laughs> I can show you what that risk will be later, right? I can, get, I can predict what that's right. going to be for you. Um, and you can then sort those out. What's the highest risk or what's the highest risk and what's the biggest bang for my buck uh, to really make sure they're putting their investment dollars where they are. I think ultimately it's about reducing risk. Uh, if they, They'll give you the money if they know you're reducing the risk as outlined probably in their 10K. You'll find all that information. Right, exactly. What keeps them up at night. Um, you know, uh, you, you'll find a ton of that information there. So um, I think that and maybe, you know, you've also got to look at this is often you know, where if you're looking in the financial sector, you look at the first lines of defense and you have operational things like KYC, you have second level teams, second line teams that are doing investigative work. And then you have the third line team that's audit. I often find that most places do not close that loop between the second level and the third level. And I think that's no, really, um, if you can close the loop, I commend you. Um, I, I think some people are wary about self-identification. Um, personally, I'm not. Um, I think that's the best thing we could be doing is self-identifying problems. The, the, and again, you're not going to solve anything unless you're willing to admit you've got a problem. So um, I think some effort there between the second line and the third line of defense is probably a, 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 good, a good activity to, to, to uh, pursue and, and looking at what happens to those numbers ultimately as you get the metrics for them. Well, thank you, James. And you must be reading the questions that I'm getting because the next question is, uh, ties into both what uh, you and Leighton said. How do you respond when you have an executive who is exposing the business to risk due to not appreciating or following security policy? So let me answer that one real quick. Sure. So CISO, you know, we, we chief information security officer, I love that role, but you need to add another S in there. Chief information security sales officer. Um, not because you're selling, um, um, you know, security tools, but you're selling a program to your executives. And so many times we hear, um, and, and, you know, the prime example of that is, uh, is the Equifax breach, right? And, and the history of that organization um, from a security perspective was when they launched their security program, they probably had one of the industry's best security programs. They had a CISO that knew how to do security well. In fact, a lot of the CISOs that serve in Fortune 100 companies are, you know, it's kind of like the Bill Walsh of CISOs, right? Out of Bill Walsh, uh, the 49ers head coach in football, were born a bunch of head coaches that won a bunch of Super Bowls um, thereafter. And he built a great generation of security executives that came from that school of thought. But after a while, security didn't mesh with business. And he was dismissed and a different CISO was brought in where security was taken at a, uh, at a lower level and wasn't really implemented. And that's where you had business executives take over security decisions and security stopped being a priority to the business. And that's simply because of bad sales from a CISO perspective. It's just the idea of uh, the CISO's job isn't to look at, you know, I think predominantly in an enterprise setting, you're not really looking at your matrix all day long. You're cultivating relationships. You're having lunch with all these different partners. You're, you know, going to get coffee. You're sitting in their office. You're joining their meetings and you're shadowing stuff that other 
parts of the business are doing and you're really studying and understanding the business because those are your marching orders and and you can't be the no you've got to be the person who's really just presenting a security program that fits the business and that's why no one framework no one method of doing security is out there right like in marketing you get a marketing sales spreadsheet and emmy can talk about that forever and you've you've got the process of what you're doing you send an email here you contact the user you do all these different things security you've got best practices but nothing is ever the same because environments vary software varies you know data varies everything is so different so there's no there's no one blueprint Understood. Understood. It, it's hard to for me because I want to throw sales pitches in there, but I'm not. <laughs> um, next question. How do you protect yourself as a CISO when during a breach, you're likely to become the fall guy? Does that affect how you protect your organization? Let me see if I can answer that one. Um, I've I have a thing where um, I like to produce a quarterly report, right? Some sort, something sort of like a newsletter that that that's easy to read, you know, nice charts and graphs, kind of shows you, hey, red zone here, we're doing this well, we're doing that well. Um, as a CISO, um, I've heard a lot of CISOs uh, say CYA, right? We all know what that means, um, <laughs> and. Um, and it's all about disseminating the information, being consistent with the information you're disseminating. Um, almost like running a campaign in a sense, right? Hey guys, this is dangerous. Hey guys, this is um, a high risk over here. So in the event that something, if something were to happen, you always have, you always have something to say, hey, we've placed this um, in front, on the table. We've placed this on the executive level, management level, user level, however, you know, risk or risk and things happen not to throw anybody under the bus but to kind of say hey we, we've done that in order to do that you just it, it can be quite frustrating sometimes because you have to be on such an organizational level you have to be so organized um, um it's like it, you know you, you run a vulnerability report and you, and you have about five thousand different vulnerabilities on it. it's like where do you even start to organize this right so you've got to really have a mindset and your team has to have a mindset to be extremely organized and, um, and, and on a certain on a sort of cadence where, you know, it's, it's clear um, as, as best as possible and you're constantly campaigning um, all the risk. Um, I always tell my guys, like, we can't get too personal. You can't say, oh, they're not doing this, fire, fire, fire. You can't do that. Nobody likes the guy that runs around saying that. But, you know, you've got to slide it to the table and you got to bring it up to the front. So in the event that the fire does come, you can always say, well, we did mention this, so I'm not going to fall on the sword on that one. I would like to add something to it. Very good comment, Paul. 100% agree. And also to James, yes, we, the CISOs, we are the sales officer, but also the education officer. I mean, let's take a look at it. The CEOs are in the position of being a CEO because they're good at driving the business. They're good in operations, they're good in sales, they're good in whatever a CEO needs to be for that particular business. So they're good at it. But we cannot expect that they are equally good at, at cybersecurity. So uh, we as CISO, uh, with quarterly reports, monthly reports, showing up and showing the risks that the company has, part of our job is also to point out those risks, make suggestions, and educate the executive suite and let them know, look, here's the problem, here's the risk, here's how it can translate to 
business impact. Um, operations can go down. You can lose clients because uh, you lose the trust. You can have a, you can lose your reputation as a company because of a breach. So there's different ways um, that you can educate the executive. And especially if you can educate them in dollar value and show them, hey, here's the risk. Um, the value, the, the risk is, let's say, half a million. And you can say, we need to fix this. And I've got a solution that's going to cost us $10,000 to fix. Now, that's something that the executive suite understands. So a combination between reports, sales, and education, I think that's where we as CISO, that's part of the, the non-technical job that we have to do. Yeah, Dasha, you're absolutely right. It's, it's all about, you know, how do you start educating people? I, I've, I've found several, you know, tools out there that I'm able to um, implement into an environment to be able to get dollar risk value to my CFOs, right? So that way they understand our specific exposure over our risk appetite. So if you're, you know, if your insurance policy, your cyber insurance policy is a $5 million policy, but your risk is 17 million, are we willing to have a $12 million exposure? And if it cost us, you know, $150,000 to fix a $12 million exposure, well, that makes a lot of business sense. And people tend to react better as, as Dasha said to numbers. I mean, it's just money talks and BS walks. Yep, 100%. Absolutely. I just want to remind any everyone uh, on the call, we, we do encourage interaction um, from our audience. Thank you, James, for chiming in. Um, so I know I've got a lot of anonymous questions that have come in through Slido, but I also want to make sure that everyone knows that it, they are open to chime in if they have a question. Um, someone that did identify themselves, Juan uh, Aria, I believe I said that correct. If you want to ask your questions directly, I'm going to give you the opportunity to. Uh, otherwise, I'll be glad to read it. Sure. So, thank you very much. So, my name is Juan Araya. You uh, pronounce it very well. Um, so, my question is related with DevOps and DevSecOps specifically. You know, which best practices would you recommend from the CISO perspective to make sure that the company follows? Especially when you're talking about, you know, companies that are using cloud-based uh, solutions. Great question. The one I was exposed to the most that worked the best to me was to have the security guy as your QA guy on the DevOps team. And they are there with team working the activities, no matter whether they're doing the agile sprint mechanism or whatever mechanism they're doing, but they're there um, as the expert for that particular area, but they're also doing the QA test routine that they got to do as well and so they're part of the team so they get assigned as part of the team they're not an external party because of course that's immediately viewed as the outsider they're part of the team as part of the mechanism and so they work with the development activities whether it's the paired stuff and agile or whatever mechanism that they're using as part of those that i seen work other times when you start to bring in the tester slash um, security person from outside, there's a little bit of hesitation because they, then they don't see that the person understands what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, they're bringing in their viewpoint from outside. 100% agree, well said. My experience also is um, 
having a proper process, a software development lifecycle where security is embedded into the whole process. And that starts honestly at the very beginning. If you create a product and you want to develop something, don't bring in security at the very end once you have it developed to do a vulnerability scan before you put it on production or right after you put it in production. Get the security team involved in the discussion, in the design, because how are you going to implement the data security, where the database is going to live, how it's going to be configured, how the application is going to talk to the database that stores information. That is, that is key right there. So the, the developers, they have most, honestly, well, what I've seen so far, their focus is make it work. Security hopefully comes in and says, make it work, but let's make it secure because it needs to be. And especially from a process perspective, if you put security as an afterthought, it's going to delay the project. You're not going to be compliant. You're, you're just not going to be secure. So key is throughout the whole process, every time you roll out a new patch, and that, by the way, goes not just through the security lifecycle or the development lifecycle, it goes through the whole lifecycle of the product. Every time you put a new patch or a feature out there, test it in the environment and test it for functionality and test it for security. So run the OWASP checks, check the application, do code reviews, test it in the actual production environment on the machine that it's going to run to check the application and the operating systems and the connectivity between the different, let's say, DMZs or VLANs that you might have in there. It, it's all one big picture. It's not just about the software itself. And if you define the process from the beginning at the different stages where QA comes in, where testing comes in, where security comes in, if you have that defined, you will be successful. I would echo what you just said there, you know, and Leighton, you mentioned it, I guess, in a way, it's like a team of teams, right? The way you're going to get to the end on this development of this thing, it's no one team. It's you're going to need a team full of teams. Uh, right. To your point earlier, James, about how you've always got to make a sales pitch to some of this stuff. Um, as as um, Dash pointed out, you know, this is, you know, I, I think if you bring those security folks in, the developers will become better developers for having the exposure to security. Uh, they'll understand those considerations, right? I think the security folks will have another understanding for the developers uh, and the clients will have an understanding. So um, I totally agree. I couldn't, couldn't uh, say it more. I think that whole notion of everybody at the table and engaging them, they feel like they're a part of the process. It's so much less confrontational than saying, Hey, look at what we built. <laughs> you know, tell us if you think this is good and somebody's going to come in and, you know, they're either going to bless it or not bless it. Um, you know, it's a, uh, I think it's, I, I think you'll ultimately get to the finish line quicker. Well, and, and to echo what you're saying, James is give them the tools that DevOps needs within their environments. Right. So if they're using Jira, make sure they've got security tools right. built into, where they're developing, where they're coding, where they're spending their time. Don't make them go five screens across to run a, you know, a, a code review or, or, or check any logic or anything like that. You got to build it all within one panel so that it, it becomes part of their work process. And like you echoing the last word you said, it makes them better. Excellent guys. Thank you very much. All right, well, thank you all for that question. Is anyone else that has submitted anonymously want to voice their question uh, while we continue or I'll read whichever you prefer. 
I'll throw it out there. I, I was I was the anonymous guy. I don't know if I put my name in there, but um, curious to get your read. Um, I spent a lot of time in the physical security space. Um, Want to know what your thoughts are strategically in terms of where you see the direction going and maybe some of these organizations uh, where traditionally I think you've seen it. Physical's been physical, info has been info. Um, but with all of the tools that physical security is dealing with, whether it be CCTV, whether it be IAM or, or uh, access control systems, that's all on network stuff uh, presenting its own um, set of vulnerabilities and, and risks. Um, where do you see the future in terms, as anybody see the future of convergence of those two spaces, where maybe in some places they're more traditionally kept somewhat separate? That is an interesting question. And I've, I, 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 not, not being an expert on the panel, but I've actually had that conversation with physical security uh, companies that have asked to partner with us. And so that's a great question. I'd like to hear what the panelists have to say. So, so uh, I can tell you, Layton, go ahead. Ding, ding. Somebody. Go ahead, Dasha. <laughs> All right, so very good question, James. Um, you're right, a lot of the stuff is coming online or is already on the network. I mean, let's just simply take a look at, uh, for example, hotels. Especially now with uh, COVID, they're trying to get away with the plastic key cards that they hand out to every client and reuse, and then somebody else gets it. It's all about get it on your device and use your device. And it's um, so basically your phone, it's, it gives you access to your house, gives you access to your camera system, gives you access to even dual factor or multi-factor authentication to your room, to you name it. So do I think at this point you can keep it separate, physical security and um, IT security? Absolutely not. It's, uh, it's going to get even worse. I mean, even just looking at as a, as a regular user, um, you have your ring, you have your Arlo cameras, you have your uh, key lock, keypad that you, you know, even with proximity token, you open the doors or anything like that. It is all IoT based. And I think that's where the future is gonna go, is it, it, it's gonna be IoT, everything is gonna go in, in that way. It's all interconnected already and it's gonna get worse. So between physical security and what we're doing, cybersecurity, I think there's going to be more and more overlap and we have to consider that as one package, no longer as separate. It's part of what I call the holistic picture of cybersecurity, call it security, call it whatever. But it's an it, interesting it, thought, right? Because it, oftentimes you find them in completely different places, right? I mean, in the no. organization, like, you know, you'll find security organizations sometimes under general counsel, you'll find them under, uh, um, you know, in, in a lot of different places, they may report directly to operations and technology. And that's been, to me, it's been the rare piece where physical and cyber have been in the same part of the organization. Um, they're typically in different places. And I think you're absolutely right there. You know, and I think where they hire from is completely different too. I think physically you're starting to see a lot of former, you know, police and, and law enforcement types um, where uh, I, I personally believe the, the CSO of the future is, yeah, they're going to be that CPP in the physical space, but they're also going to be the CISSP. <laughs> You're going to need them both. Yeah, right. Exactly. I know um, I've been in, uh, I'd probably say four or five years ago, I was working with a federal agency that was combining the physical and 
logical together where at that time you couldn't get on the network unless you were logged into the building and those types of things. So they actually had the logical access system and the physical access system connected. Okay, one had to trigger the other just to be able to access to get onto the network. Now, of course, with COVID, all of that is switching. I mean, I saw a DOD announcement a couple of days ago that says that they're moving to where they're going to be able to do classified processing at home. Okay, that type of thing, which is totally different than they ever allowed for the 40 years I was in that world. Yeah. Okay, that type of thing. And so we're seeing it converge. We're seeing it come together. We're having to pay attention from a physical security side to where are data centers in other parts of the world that we never even thought of before because they get affected by natural events just like we do, yep. all right? That type of thing. And so all of it is converging that we looked at. And then how really strong is your mobile device sitting there in your pocket, okay, or in your purse and its own security? Okay, we got one vendor who doesn't allow any security components to get on it because they manage it all. We got another one that's open, wide open, but they got, you know, massive numbers of known malware attack mechanisms up to and including stealing your credentials, you know. And so uh, the security world needs to pay attention to the, all of that coming together. Okay, um, I know the physical guys. Um, have been working on, you know, networks, servers, all the rest of it for the last 10, 12 years right. uh, and understanding what do they need to do in order to manage the access system for the building, yeah. you know, that type of thing. Or, you know, uh, who came in today? And so how are they getting onboarded, you know? And all right, how fast was that person's account turned off when they left? you know, et cetera, from the physical side, certainly, and getting the proximity cards or whatever they're using. But because they're all what? They're all on the network. Yeah. Well, I think you said that it was very interesting. You said that one of the federal agencies was actually yes. doing that yes. joining. I said, heaven help us if they're actually leading. <laughs> you know, that, that well, sounds like I, pretty I, cutting edge. So, so one, thing to, one thing to look at is per industry, right? And mm -hmm. if you look at different industries, manufacturing have long had the CISO and CSO position brought together uh, yep. because they understood the need that both of those need to be connected. So if, right. you, if you actually look at it per industry um, and you go down the list, you'll see that manufacturing for everything that we talk about, you know, IOT and a lot of their vulnerabilities and a lot right. of the downside that exists within manufacturing, they're actually ahead of the ball when it comes to that specific topic. Um, yeah. A great example is David Levin at RIOC, uh, right. sorry, at RICO. Um, you know, he's, he's the CSO there. He's in charge of physical and uh, information security. Those are great, you know, and, and both of those fall under, under their helm of responsibility and he's, he's global at it. So yeah. he deals with all of their manufacturing all over the globe. And so that it all comes sense. together. Their bread and butter is in it, right? I mean, right. physical assets are in, you know. That's well, and when you think of manufacturing in my threat hunting days, one of, one of the, one of my funnest projects was, um, seeing a company that decided to divest from China and go to an, a different Asian country and move their manufacturing there, but they had a different security officer than an information security officer. And so there was a pitfall when the threat actors were able to physically make it on location and still plant a back door onto the hardware 
all together. So um, you guys hear me okay? Yeah. yeah. All right, sorry, my, my headset just died. So I'm like, whoa, what's going on? Um, <laughs> and, um, and so um, we saw, we saw we, you see that in, in that specific case, we saw a great example of how you know, traditional threat hunting can come back and really haunt uh, an organization when physical security isn't really in sync with information security. That's a great example. That's really good, compelling. So also to Leighton, what you said earlier is um, when the government allows um, sensitive or classified data to be processed at home or remotely, then also the whole physical question then becomes, Absolutely. well, how do we, what kind of security are we going to put in place at home? How is the home actually protected where you've got your office in, let's say, kitchen and you've got um, five kids running around and you've got your uncle showing up and, uh, you know, that also then comes into the whole consideration that needs to be taken into account of how are we going to actually put that together from a holistic perspective and how are we going to deal with it? And what risk does that, what additional risk does that expose to the organization and the data and the processes? Especially when at home I can just raise my camera and take a picture of a classified you know, document. You got all the rest yep. of that. can't imagine right. a DLP nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I think, I think Dasha brings up a great point about IoT. A lot of these, especially cheaper devices, have crap, can I use that word? Have terrible, terrible levels of encryption. Um, we don't, you know, they may not, you know, we may not have trusted devices that are accessing those. We may be using those. We don't know what controls are there. And so to assess those risks, you know, I'm thinking, of one company that had Arlo cameras, their security system, only provided 30 days of coverage. Uh, it, was, it was an SSL3 connection uh, to, to the data store. They didn't, they didn't handle the keys. All those sorts of things, even to home networks, right? Okay, so I got a VPN, we're good. But what about that endpoint? Um, and are there Maybe I'm going DLP here, but how do we prevent that data leakage? So like you said, you know, your camera, I can take a screenshot of the screen or I could get infected with, because I have some free antivirus software that doesn't catch a screen scraper. It's loaded on my machine. Now maybe that's a onesie twosie exposure, but I don't want to have to make a disclosure to my customers and erode my you know, the confidence with them, so on and so forth. Any recommendations there? Well, one thing I've certainly noticed is if you want it to be understood by the senior executives, give it to them and where it's gonna hit the corporate bottom line. Reputational risk is a risk that is subjective, but it certainly has been documented. I mean, we've got Poneman surveys talking about five, $6 million per breach you know, as a typical cost, depending upon where you are in the world, the number is different, but you know, so it takes into locality, but it's still something that they have to pay attention to because there isn't a single major industry that hasn't been hit in the last two years. And so, you know, so th that's not that anybody's exempt. Um, and then we look at, you know, and Michael, I've been working in the OT world for the last six or eight months a lot. 
and there's a huge area because they just have never on the OT side not worked on it. Manufacturing, yes, but when you get into other areas around those arenas, they haven't, you know, that type of thing. And is there important information there? Sure. Is there information that organizations doesn't want anybody to know because of competitive advantage? Absolutely. You know, that type of thing. So there's a lot of those areas. So one is to look there. Two is to do the basic, as James said earlier, blocking and tackling in the first place. Okay. Get your basic parameters in place. You know, uh, an IoT device is still an IP-based device, so therefore you still have certain areas that you have to make sure you got in place, you know, around managing the connections, managing the access, you know, et cetera, those types of things. So there's lots of that. So could you share that uh, you mentioned a, a resource that helps quantify the dollar amounts that uh, we could share with management to help them understand Poneman Institute's research on how much a breach costs. He does it every year. Larry Pon Dr. Larry Poneman. Um, you know, um, that one is specifically industry by industry by industry. Of course, you got the Verizon data breach report, but that's uniquely often focused in one area. But the Poneman research, I know he goes at least six to eight different um, industries uh, each year where he does the uh, investigative research around how much does the breach cost, where is it, what type of breach was it in general, um, and those types of things um, as far as those mechanisms go. Um, it's Dr. Larry Poneman and he's been doing it I guess probably what 12 or 13 years now uh, that he's been putting the data together about how much does the breach cost. Excellent. After the fact. So he's doing the historical, you can see what the actual cost was, and he does it every year. Excellent. Thank you. All right. I believe we may have room for one more question because I respect everybody uh, having a hard stop in two minutes. Well, I, I didn't realize it was that close. Um, <laughs> I'm going to end it this way. First, thank you, panel. For attending. Thank you attendees for the questions, the participation. Um, this has been a very, very welcomed type of event. It's exactly what we wanted it to be and I thank you very much for your attendance. Uh, the last thing I'll say is I am a cyber solutions director. No sales pitch, but if you ever want to have a conversation, find me on LinkedIn, shoot me an email. I'll be glad to have a conversation. This is what we do. We just answer your questions without selling you anything. And we same here, um, you find me on LinkedIn, um, shoot me an email, I believe my information is also out there somewhere or you will get it after this, um, um, after we get uh, this wrapped up. So if you have any questions or want to chat offline about uh, security or any you know bounce ideas around, please reach out. I'm here, um, I'm, I'm really glad that there's such an interest because I'm very passionate about it to make sure we all, since we're all in the same boat, we're all trying to protect our data, our businesses, our countries. So let's, um, you know, if we all can contribute just a little tiny bit with our know-how, it goes a long way. With that, I'm going to bid everyone farewell because I can't say good day, good night, or good afternoon because we've got them all over from Spain to Israel to California. There's no telling where everybody's at. So thank you again. We appreciate it. 
and look forward to seeing you at the next one.